Sumerian stories have had significant influence on various aspects of ancient Near Eastern literature, including the Hebrew Bible, also called the Torah, and the Tanakh. It's important to note that the Bible is a collection of texts written by different authors over a long period of time, and its composition was influenced by various cultural and literary traditions, including those of the Sumerians. Sumerians were an ancient civilization that flourished in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, around 4000 to 2000 BCE. They left behind a rich literary tradition, including mythological and epic text. Some of the Sumerian stories and motifs that influenced the Bible, the Sumerian creation myth, known as the Enuma Elish, bears similarities to the creation account found in the book of Genesis. Both narratives involve the establishment of order from chaos and the separation of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 states that the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Notice how the waters are plural. In the Enuma Elish, it is two waters known as Apsu and Tiamat. The Hebrew for deep is Tehom. The word for Tiamat is cognate for deep. So not only is there a connection between the way the story is written off the rip, but we also have cognates in the language. The two waters being Apsu and Tiamat, the primeval waters, just as the surface of the deep hovering over the waters. The Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh contains a flood narrative that predates the biblical account of Noah's flood by thousands of years. The similarities between the two stories, such as the construction of an ark, the preservation of animals, and sending out a dove to find land, suggests that the biblical flood story may have drawn inspiration from the Sumerian tradition. Sumerians developed one of the earliest known legal codes, known as the Code of Ur-Namu. This influenced subsequent legal codes of the ancient Near East, including the biblical laws found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Similarities in themes and regulations, such as the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the exact same phrase is found in Sumerian law codes. Now, this is a very specific thing to say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which shows up in the Code of Hammurabi, shows up in Leviticus when Yahweh tells Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These regulations regarding property and slavery suggest a shared legal heritage. The biblical book of Proverbs bears similarities to Sumerian wisdom literature, such as the instructions of Shurupak, just like the instructions of Amun Opeh, which I'll get to later. Both of these texts offer moral and practical advice on various aspects of life. Hebrew authors and editors transformed and adapted these Sumerian stories to fit the religious and cultural context. The influence of the Sumerian literature is evident in the themes, motifs, and narrative structures found in the Hebrew Bible. This influence is a part of a broader cultural exchange 
and continuity in the ancient Near East. Ugaritic stories, specifically those discovered in ancient city of Ugarit, modern-day Syria, have also had an impact on the development of biblical literature. Ugarit was a flourishing city-state during the Late Bronze Age, from 1400 to 1200 BCE, and its texts, written in cuneiform script, provide valuable insights into the religious and cultural milieu of the ancient Near East. The Ugaritic texts contain myths, epic poems, and ritual texts that have parallels and influences on certain aspects of the Hebrew Bible. The Baal Cycle, most famous Ugaritic text, a collection of mythological texts about the Canaanite god Baal. The Baal Cycle shares similarities with biblical narratives, particularly in the portrayal of a divine conflict between a storm god and the forces of chaos. These parallels can be seen in passages of the Psalms, that describe Yahweh's victory over chaos and the sea and descriptions of Yahweh's control over the elements. Baal defeats the Leviathan, just as Yahweh defeats the Leviathan in Psalms. Ugaritic texts depict a divine assembly or a council of gods with El as the head deity. This assembly plays a role in divine decision-making and governance. Similar concepts are found in the Hebrew Bible, where Yahweh provides over a heavenly council, as seen in passages like Psalm 82 and Job 1.6. Psalm 82 saying, El presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods, the Elohim. But also Job 1.6 states, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before El, and Satan came also among them. Both of these texts are not even hiding the fact that there are lesser gods below the high god, who is El. Ritual and liturgical texts contain descriptions of religious rituals and liturgies performed in honor of various Ugaritic deities. These texts offer insights into the religious practices and beliefs of the ancient Near East. Some scholars suggest the elements of the Ugaritic rituals may have influenced certain aspects of Israelite worship, such as the structure and content of Psalms and other poetic texts. The Ugaritic language, closely related to Hebrew, provides linguistic and lexical parallels that shed light on certain biblical terms and expressions. The study of Ugaritic has helped scholars better understand and interpret Hebrew words and phrases found in the Bible. Egyptian stories and cultural influence are evident in various aspects of the Hebrew Bible. Egypt, a powerful and influential civilization in the Near East, had significant impact on the development of Israelite culture and religious beliefs. The story of the Exodus, which describes the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, is one of the central narratives in the Bible. The biblical account shares the same thematic elements and motifs with the Egyptian literature, such as the idea of the divine deliverer and confrontation between a powerful ruler and figure chosen by God. While the Exodus story primarily reflects Israelite perspectives, it is likely that the historical experience of the Hyksos leaving Egypt may have influenced this narrative. Some Judeo-Christian scholars try to link these as the same event. However, 
This is not likely considering the dates are separated by several centuries. Within the Hyksos period, we don't see a Moses or a Joshua or Aaron. And the Exodus story is likely a legend because even the Pharaoh is not named. If this was a real story, the Pharaoh should just be named and scholars would be able to point to these events because we have so much data on every single Pharaoh. We'd be able to know which of these Pharaohs lines up with this story. The assumption that this was Pharaoh Ramses is not likely due to the fact that Ramses conquers Canaan and in the text of the biblical story, he fails to catch up to the Israelites, which is the opposite of what happens with Ramses. In fact, after Ramses, the land of Canaan was under Egyptian occupation for another 200 years, which would not make any sense if Moses and the Israelites were setting up the covenant during this time under Egyptian occupation. The biblical book of Proverbs contains wisdom sayings and teachings that are similar to those found in ancient Egyptian wisdom literature, such as the instructions of Amen Ope. In fact, some of the manuscripts from the Septuagint actually still have Amen Ope in the text. Both traditions emphasize ethical conduct, practical advice for daily life, and the pursuit of wisdom. Egyptian religious symbolism and imagery can be found in certain biblical texts. For example, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophets use symbols reminiscent of Egyptian religious motifs to convey his message. The portrayal of Pharaoh as a powerful ruler and the imagery associated with the Egyptian gods and goddesses also demonstrate the cultural influence of Egypt. Here on the stone of Hezekiah, you can see an Egyptian Ankh present. The use of hymnic and liturgical elements in the Hebrew Bible shows similarities to Egyptian religious practices. The Psalms contain hymns of praise and worship that share structural and thematic resemblances to ancient Egyptian hymns and prayers. Some of the legal concepts in the Hebrew Bible bear similarities to Egyptian legal traditions, just as the Sumerian and Babylonian texts do. The Canaanites arguably have the most influence on the Hebrew Bible. The Canaanite pantheon of gods was a diverse and complex system of deities worshipped by the ancient Canaanites, land that would be present-day Israel right now, who inhabited the region corresponding to present-day Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, and parts of Jordan and Syria. Here are some key gods and goddesses from the Canaanite pantheon. Number one, El. The same name is the God of the Hebrew Bible. El is the chief deity in the Canaanite pantheon and was associated with authority, kingship, and wisdom. He's often depicted as an aged and bearded figure. El presided over a divine council and held a central position in the Canaanite religious beliefs. His son was Bel. Baal was one of the most prominent gods in Canaanite pantheon. He was associated with the storms, fertility, and agricultural abundance. Baal was depicted as a powerful warrior, wielding a lightning bolt, symbolizing his control over the forces of nature. El had a wife named Asherah, the consort of El, 
Considered the mother goddess in Canaanite religion, the queen of heaven, she represented fertility, motherhood, and nurturing. Asherah was often depicted as the divine mother figure, sometimes portrayed alongside a sacred tree or a pole representing her presence. Anat was a fierce and warlike goddess associated with battle, violence, protection, and wisdom. Like Athena, Anat was depicted as a warrior goddess, often shown with a bow, a spear, or a shield. Astarte, also known as Ashtaroth, was the goddess associated with love, beauty, and sexuality. She was considered the patron of fertility, both in terms of human production and agricultural abundance. Astarte was depicted as a sensual goddess adorned with jewelry and symbols of fertility. Dagon, associated with agriculture, grain, fertility. He was often depicted as a fish-like deity, symbolizing abundance with fertility linked to water and agricultural prosperity. Last, but certainly not least, Yahweh, often referred to as Yahoo, the deity associated with a specific region or tribe, rather than being a central figure in the broader Canaanite pantheon. The understanding of Yahweh's role in the Canaanite religion is complex and subject to ongoing scholarly debate. He was a tribal deity. He's also one of the sons of El. There are some who suggest that Yahweh and Baal are interchangeable depending on the location, both being the son of El and both being extremely important as princes of the pantheon. This may play into the later tradition of the Hebrew Bible, where the priests of Yahweh are battling with the priests of Baal, such as the story of Elijah and Jezebel. Another perspective suggests that Yahweh emerged through a process of syncretism, wherein the worship of Yahweh merged with elements of Canaanite religious beliefs and practices. This view posits that Yahweh began as a local deity, later absorbed attributes and roles from other Canaanite gods such as El and Baal. Canaanite stories have significant impact on the Hebrew Bible, given the close historical and cultural connections between the Israelites and Canaanites. The Canaanites were the indigenous inhabitants of the land of Canaan, which encompasses modern-day Israel. Canaanite mythology and religious beliefs, cultic practices such as the sacrifices, offerings, and temple worship. Biblical texts frequently mention Israelite interactions with Canaanite religious practices, often presenting them negatively that Israelites should avoid them. The Canaanite practices and the Israelites' response to them are discussed in the context of idolatry and the centralization of worship in Jerusalem. The absorption of the Canaanite El into the Yahweh religion is a complex process that took place over an extended period of time. El, the chief deity in the pantheon, associated with the authority, kingship, and divine counsel, becomes one and the same with his own son, Yahweh. And throughout the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh and El, or El Elyon, which means God Most High, are interchangeable and mean the same thing at some points. The biblical texts even refer to Yahweh as El Elyon, emphasizing his identification with the supreme deity. This suggests that the early Israelites may have seen Yahweh as a manifestation or an aspect of El. As the Israelites settled in Canaan, 
They likely interacted and assimilated elements of Canaanite culture and religious practices. The worship of El may have influenced the evolving understanding of Yahweh, with El's attributes and characteristics merging with those ascribed to Yahweh. The process of syncretism, where deities from different religious traditions are combined or identified with each other, likely played a role. Over time, the Israelites established their religious identity. There may have been a merging of El and Yahweh, resulting in the understanding of Yahweh as the primary deity, supreme authority. El's association with the Divine Council, consisting of subordinate deities, can be seen in both Canaanite and early Israelite traditions. As the Israelite religion developed, the concept of divine council was retained, but with Yahweh as the head of the council. The Phoenician stories and cultural influences left their mark on certain aspects of the Hebrew Bible. The Phoenicians, which are the purple people called by the Greeks, are an ancient seafaring people who inhabited the coastal region of modern-day Lebanon, had significant interactions with the Israelites, leading to the cultural exchanges and influences. With direct evidence of Phoenician stories in the Bible, the Neoplatonist writer Porphyry stating that a priest named Sanko Neathan of Beirut wrote the truest history because he obtained the records from Hierambolus, priest of Yahweh, that Sanko Neathan dedicated his history to Abibel, king of Beirut, and it was approved by the king and other investigators, the date of this writing being around 1200 BCE. In this text, El, who is also called Kronos, sacrifices his only begotten son, Yehud, as an offering to his father in heaven, and then circumcises himself and decreed from that day forward that all of his offspring must also circumcise themselves in honor of Aranos. And El was deified as the star Saturn, Saturday being the same day as the Sabbath. This story is clearly borrowed by the Hebrew scribes for the book of Genesis, when Abraham, who was offering his only begotten son Isaac as an offering to El, but in this case, an angel stops him. However, like in the Phoenician myth, it is Abraham who is the first patriarch to circumcise himself and make this a custom among the Israelites for all males. The Israelites had a tendency to synthesize elements from neighboring cultures, and the Phoenicians played a role in this process. The worship of Canaanite deities, including Baal and Asherah, found its way into Israelite religious practices. As described in the Hebrew Bible, these influences can be seen in the biblical narratives of Israelite idolatry and their struggle to remain faithful to only Yahweh. Phoenician expertise in craftsmanship and maritime trade likely influenced the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem known as the Solomon Temple. Phoenician artisans and materials were involved in the construction, and some architectural and artistic elements may have been influenced by Phoenician styles. 
The Hebrew Bible contains references to Phoenician cities such as Tyre and Sidon and their cultural practices. For example, the story of King Hiram of Tyre collaborating with King Solomon in the building of the temple highlights the close relationship between the Israelites and Phoenicians. The first temple period in ancient Israel refers to the time when the first temple, also known as Solomon's temple, stood in Jerusalem. This period spans between approximately 10th century BCE until its destruction by the Babylonians in 586 BCE. Understanding the religious landscape during this period is complex, and scholarly views vary regarding the extent of polytheistic practices present during this time. The practice of monotheism seems to be only after the Israelites returned back from Babylon in the 5th century. Scholars suggest that polytheistic elements persisted during this period. They argue that while Yahweh may have been regarded as the primary deity, other gods and goddesses were still acknowledged and worshipped alongside Yahweh. The archaeological evidence, including inscriptions and artifacts found in Jerusalem, indicate the presence of symbols associated with other deities during this time. The Elephantine Jews were a Jewish community that resided in the ancient city of Elephantine, located on an island in the Nile River in Egypt. They lived during the 5th century BCE and left behind a corpus of documents known as the Elephantine Papyri, which provides insights into the religious beliefs and practices of the time. Based on the Elephantine Papyri, it appears that the religion of the Elephantine Jews was a blend of Yahweh worship and syncretic elements influenced by the local religious environment. While they acknowledged Yahweh as the primary deity, they also incorporated certain practices from both Egyptian and Canaanite religious traditions. These Elephantine Jews built and maintained a temple dedicated to Yahweh on the island. They considered Yahweh as the supreme deity and sought his guidance and protection. However, alongside the worship of Yahweh was also other gods and goddesses like Asherah. One of the prominent deities mentioned in the Elephantine papyri is Yaho, often identified as a synchronistic form of Yahweh fused with the Egyptian gods like Amon. Additionally, Egyptian gods, particularly Kunum, Satis, and Anuket, were worshipped in this location. These deities were believed to have protective powers and were invoked for various purposes such as fertility, health, and general well-being. This elephantine papyrus indicates a level of polytheism and syncretism, as well as cultural assimilation, where elements of different religious traditions coexisted. Overall, the Elephantine Jews maintained a distinctive religious identity centered around Yahweh, but also incorporated beliefs and practices from their local environment. Their religion demonstrates the complex nature of religious syncretism and the adaption of religious traditions in a multicultural text. The exact time frame for the final compilation of the Torah, or the first five books of Moses, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy into its current monotheistic form is a subject of scholarly debate. Most scholars agree that these texts were written during post-Babylonian exile. As the Israelites returned to their land, religious leaders and scribes likely engaged in the process of collecting, editing, and shaping various religious texts. There is no mention of the Torah by any Greek, Egyptian, Persian, or Syrian sources before the 5th century BCE. Moses and Noah and Abraham are not mentioned in any text before the 5th century BCE. Only the kings like David and Omri show up in some stelis. But the stories of the flood, the exodus, and the 12 tribes of Israel show up in popular culture only after Alexander the Great conquers Persia in the 4th century BCE. There are some scholars who now suggest that the five books of Moses were compiled in Alexandria during the Ptolemaic period. Ancient historians like Herodotus, Xenophon, and Thucydides don't even mention Israel in their writings. This suggests that Israel was not a powerful kingdom, just a small city-state. It's possible that these texts existed as independent scrolls during these periods, but they were not known to most of the world outside the Levant until the 4th century BCE. This is the end of our mythological journey through the ancient realms of Sumer, Ugarit, Egypt, Canaan, and beyond. As we've explored this rich tapestry of these captivating civilizations, it became clear that their stories, beliefs, and cultural influences have left an indelible mark on the biblical world. From the epic tales of the Gilgamesh and Sumer to the poetic sagas of Baal and Ugarit, from the mystical hymns of the Egyptian gods to the intricate pantheon of the Canaanite deities, we find a treasure trove of inspiration that seeped into the very fabric of the Hebrew Bible. But the skilled weavers, the biblical authors and editors didn't simply copy and paste from the neighboring mythologies. Oh no, they expertly blended, transformed, and repurposed these ancient narratives weaving them into a new tapestry of faith, history, and moral guidance. Let me give you one more example before I go. The story of Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai look a lot like Ishtar and Marduk. The story of Esther and Mordecai has obvious parallels to the story of Ishtar descending into the underworld to save Tammuz from his death. In the story of Ishtar and Tammuz, Tammuz is taken down to the underworld, the lover of Ishtar. And then Ishtar goes and descends down, and as she goes down from every layer of hell, she has to take off a layer of clothing until she gets to the bottom layer, where she has to face off with the queen of the underworld, where she stays down there for three days until her galley eunuchs are sent down from heaven to bring her back to life, where she is able to take Tammuz and raise him out of hell, and thus springtime ensues. In the story of Esther in the Bible, there's a lot of similarities and parallels. Instead of Tammuz, it's Mordecai. 
Now, why would they use Marduk's name instead of Tammuz's name? Well, it turns out that Marduk and Tammuz are actually synchronized in many texts. The god Bel is actually a synchronization of Marduk and Demutsi or Tammuz. So it actually does make sense for Mordecai to be the name of the Hebrew person who is saved by Esther. In this text, Mordecai is taken into a dungeon by Haman, and then Esther has to go into the court of the king of Persia, Xerxes, and she has to plead for the safety of Mordecai, which she is successful when her eunuch priest, just like the Gali eunuchs, her eunuchs actually come to her aid, and she also has to take off layers of clothing as well. It is a clear mimesis of the story of the Sumerians. I am of the opinion that these writers did, did, did this with no ill intent, and they were just trying to pass down sacred stories that everyone knew. The Sumerian floodman finds its counterpart in the story of Noah and the Ark. The Canaanite storm god Baal's conflict with the sea god Yam echoes the biblical portrayal of Yahweh's triumph over chaos and the grandeur of Egyptian cosmology lends its majesty to the descriptions of heaven and earth in Genesis. Yes, this interplay between mythologies goes beyond mere literary borrowings. It reveals the interconnectedness of ancient civilizations. The vibrant exchange of ideas and the eternal quest for humanity to understand the mysteries of the world and our place in it. Esther, just like Ishtar, is a story that explains the death of the winter and the resurrection of the spring. Both Ishtar and Esther have their festivals at the same time of the year. Let us marvel at the profound influence of these ancient mythologies on the biblical world. Let us recognize that shared motifs, cultural cross-pollination, and the universal truths that emerge from these diverse narratives. As we delve into the depths of history, we uncover not only the roots of our collective heritage, but also the timeless power of storytelling, shaping civilizations and shaping our very identities. So, dear viewers, as we bid farewell to this mythological odyssey, let us carry with us the wisdom and wonder of these ancient tales, and may we continue to explore, question, and appreciate the incredible tapestry of human imagination that binds us across time and space. Thank you for joining us on this illuminating journey. Until our paths cross again, keep seeking Gnosis and embracing the marvels of our shared human story. Stay curious, stay inspired by the muse, and keep weaving your own mythological tapestry. You have just attained true gnosis.